What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. As you all know by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code JUSTBASEBALL and you will get up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. One, download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code JUSTBASEBALL. Two, deposit at least $10 and place your first wager on any game. Three, you will receive up to $1,500 in bonus bets if your bet loses. Just make sure you use bonus code JUSTBASEBALL when you sign up. Disclaimer, BetMGM.com for terms and conditions and must be 21 or older to wager. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., New York, or Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in Colorado, D.C., Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, New Jersey, Nevada, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona, 1-800-327-369. 5050 in Massachusetts, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, and 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan, in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code JUSTBASEBALL and get your $1,500 first bet offer today. The field is set. The regular season is over. This is the Just Baseball Show for Monday, October 2nd, brought to you by the fine folks at BetMGM. Jack McMullen, Arm Layton. Uh, we got to talk about the sad news off the top. Tim Wakefield unfortunately passed away at 57 years old, so we're going to do that. Um, also, Miguel Cabrera might have played his final game. Well, has played his final game. A couple of guys might have played their final game. Zach Granke, Joey Votto. Votto was tossed from what could have been his final game. Uh, Buck Showalter uh, was forced to step down, which is a pretty loaded conversation. And then we got to get into who's in, who's out of the playoff field from over the weekend. But let's start with, you know, the worst news of the weekend right away. Tim Wakefield passed at 57 years old on Sunday. Um, Long battle with brain cancer that I wish we didn't know about. Like that sucked. And I know that you and Peter talked about that a little bit. Kurt Schilling was an asshole um, for exposing something that was, you know, personal and private. Um, but yeah. I love to see the outpouring from former teammates. I saw Kevin Euclid, who was tearing up on Nesson, a beautiful tweet from Mike Lowell. There were a couple other guys and a great video of um of Mike Timlin just came up, you know, kind of citing Wakefield selflessness and, and how good of a teammate he was. But just for the primer, if you as a listener are a little bit too young to remember Tim Wakefield, spent 19 years in the big leagues, 17 of which with the Boston Red Sox. He finished third in rookie of the year voting in 92. And I want to start with that 1992 season, his rookie year. This guy had 10 wins and six complete games in AAA <laughs> before he got called up. On July 31st, six complete games before the end of July. He comes up, Major League debut, complete game win over the Cardinals, throws 146 pitches. He (laughs) finishes third in Cy Young voting his first year in Boston, made an all-star team. He won two World Series in 04 and 07. He won 200 games exactly. He threw over 3,200 innings, and he finished with a career 4-4-1 ERA, and he threw until he was 44 years old. His knuckler was like the best. It sat mid-60s. I loved when he would mix in a fastball. 
I think he ran it up to like 74, 75. I think, I think he'd surprise you with an 80 every once in a while. In his prime, he'd, he'd sneak in an 80. Dude, regardless, this guy was obviously an amazing teammate, obviously an amazing dude. And what I remember from watching him was he was the most fun watch in baseball when that knuckleball was going because it's such an oddity and he did it better than anybody in that era. Yeah, and and you know, I I wish I could have had the pleasure of meeting Tim Wakefield, but it just it's you can just tell by the you know, and people love to to say good things about people when they pass away, no matter what, even if they're not the nicest people on 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 the planet. But yeah. you can tell when it's a different level when when people are just so touched by a person, and and Tim Wakefield seems to be one of those people. Just but judging by the reaction, judging by the outpouring of so many different people uh, across the game, and 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 in so many other facets. But you know, even from what I've been able to see just of him on TV when he was doing some stuff, you know, around the game there and and, and just interviews and the way he carried himself on the field by by all indications, just a phenomenal human being. And uh, sometimes it's just frustrating how uh, those are the guys that end up leaving this earth a little bit too soon. You talked about his career and I thought you summed it up like incredibly well. And I think the most fascinating aspect of his career is before he even made his big league debut. This guy was drafted as a first baseman. Yeah. And I don't know if everybody knows that aspect of the story. He's born in Melbourne, Florida, and then played at Florida Tech, which I believe at the time it still is a Division II school, uh, mashed there as a first baseman, and eventually gets picked by the, the Pirates. And I think it was the 88 draft. Apparently a scout told him, hey, man, like you're, you're never going to make it above double A as, as you are. And Wakefield decided to try to – experiment with a knuckleball when he was playing catch and just kind of started working on that and, and found something there. And, uh, you know, there was a quote from him saying that I just wanted to be able to say, I tried everything I could do to make it, you know, how hard it is to make it as a first baseman when you don't have a, a nine something OPS and in the minor leagues. And, you know, it also shows you that this is a pretty humble dude and uh, a very open-minded dude to to take that constructive criticism and say, all right, let me go to the drawing board here and see what I can do. And, he ends up winning 200 games later and winning World Series and making an all-star game and all the things that you said in a Red Sox Hall of Famer, Clemente Award winner. You can yeah. go on and on and on and on. Uh, but I think it's just so incredible how he he has his number retired at Florida Tech when, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think I don't think he ever really pitched there. So it, it's pretty awesome that y- you have something as unique of a path as Tim Wakefield's. And then as good of a career as he had uh, through those those years. And here's the thing. He was an amazing pitcher. But based on the, I don't know, the love for him during his playing career, after his playing career, and especially what we saw on Sunday and what you're probably seeing today as well, you would have no idea that that guy had five ERA seasons. You would think that this guy was a two and a half ERA guy every single year. But that's who Tim Wakefield is. And again, if you haven't seen that video, I think it was 07, might have been 04 of Mike Timlin talking kind of like hijacking an interview that that Wakefield was doing with Nesson and saying this guy like the amount of love I have for this guy I can't really put into words because he was professional and he understood being taken off the World Series roster when they did win the World Series and, and there's a certain element to that where everybody's a professional everybody wants to be on the roster in big moments but for that guy to say yes it might be the best scenario for me to not be on this roster i i think is like something you get from very very few people so yeah clearly one of the good ones and i like to think that the one knuckleball that george kirby threw yesterday was an ode to tim wakefield knuckleball was disgusting did you see yeah, it? it was dirty that was gross. it was nasty that was amazing. Yeah. So shout out, shout out George Kirby if that was an ode. And um, yeah, a baseball clearly going to miss Tim Wakefield. Um, Miguel Cabrera just finished up his big league career. And there was a great tribute put out by the Tigers. It was narrated by J.K. Simmons. And it was really just a thank you, Miggy. And he had his kids there. And I, I mean, dude, like Adam Wainwright's done. Joey Votto might be done. Zach Granke might be done. But it was it was Miggy that stood out above the rest. Obviously, Wayno's concert this past weekend was <laughs> a hilarious little wrinkle in St. Louis. But I know you're the Miggy guy. And I know that this weekend was kind of full circle with this 
this being the first full season that the Marlins are playoff bound since Miggy was there in 2003. Am I right? So yeah, isn't that wild? That is crazy. Um, but yeah, man, like I don't know when when you think about Miguel Cabrera five years from now, what jumps to mind? It's the swing, man. I, every time I think about him, I just see that that simple swing, his hands just driving the ball the other way. It, it's just one of the smoothest and most consistent and easy, repeatable swings. And it's just that's why when people say one of the greatest right-handed hitters, you know, of the last 50 years, and you can really say of, of all time, it, it's just so clear to me because Every time I think about him, I can just picture the the smooth load and just the easy swing and the ball just always jumped off of the bat. It was just like one of those things where it, it looks like he's barely putting in any effort and it just jumped. And, and it's amazing because he did that in Comerica, you know, for, yeah. for so many years where it, it's a place where you don't just flick the ball the other way and, and hit it out to, to the right center gap. But for me, you know, it was just the dominance and, and consistency up until, you know, he hit that 33 year old kind of, kind of age range where the knees started to go. And and that's just the nature of the beast of this sport. And that always happens. But I mean, when you look at the numbers, the combination of, of being able to hit for average, hit for power, get on base, it, it's just one of the most aesthetically pleasing, uh, baseball reference looks that you're going to have up until I age about 32, 33. Uh, but man, he just filled up the stat sheet and he was just so much fun to watch hit. It was kind of the pool holes thing like pool holes. If he didn't have that angels tenure, his baseball reference page would be the stuff of legends. Oh. And it, it took, yeah. it took, Barry Bonds synthetically improving his uh, baseball ability to make the baseball reference page look really good. So, yeah, I mean, we could play the what if game. Like if you took out the last X amount of years for Miggy, his you know career numbers will be X, Y and Z. You can do the same thing with Votto, too. But Miggy, w- what jumped out to me very similar to you, and I don't mean to put this on Jordan Alvarez, but. The same feeling I get from watching Jordan, I got from watching Miggy during his Triple Crown season in the early 2010s. I was like, the the question that kept coming to mind was, how can a dude that big be that fluid? He was a huge human at that time. And in Miami, he was not. He was a skinny kid. He was a young kid. And he was kind of a freak athlete, that kind of look. When he got to Detroit and he kind of finished what he was physically... He was a big dude, and those forearms were massive, and that torso was huge, yet everything worked so rhythmically and so fluidly. It was just kind of crazy to watch. I was like, they they don't make them like this. It's funny. The thing that really comes to my mind is like, hitting shouldn't look that easy. And that was the other thing I was going to say. Like, it's just wild how easy he made it look. He could get to any pitch. Uh, He he never looked really fooled. He rarely took bad swings. And the most wild thing to me is you look at pretty much a stretch of of 10 to to 12 years, maybe a little bit more than that. I'd say closer to 15 years where he's pretty much hitting 300, a lot of times well over 300, and 30 bombs, a lot of times well over 30 bombs every single year. And I don't know if you – realize like and not you but just like general people like realizing and, and i almost didn't think about it until more recently how hard it is to win the triple crown in comerica yeah. to lead the league in home runs and and he did that in a year where you know the home runs were down and and you know as we kind of turned to 2010 2011 2012 you know 44 home runs leading the league in comerica is extremely extremely difficult uh but if you go through the reference page and just you're you're not going to find very many seasons with with less than 30 home runs, and then adjacent to that, every year is 323, 339, 320. Oh no, a 292, 324, 328, 344, 330, 348, 313, 338, 316. Like that's absolutely insane to do that just year over year over year batting average right wise, while giving you 30 to to 40 something home runs just about every single year too. Is he unanimous? I know like a Griffey wasn't, but as soon as Jeter and Rivera were unanimous, yeah, that might have opened the floodgates. Yeah. Is he a unanimous? Well, Jeter fan? Jeter got fucked. What do you mean? Did he He, was he wasn't not- unanimous. No, there was one asshole. I don't know ball. You don't know ball. There was one asshole that anonymously voted no or didn't Jack vote ass. for him. Yeah, and and so that's why I was going to answer the question of Ken Rosenthal had some really good thoughts on this on um 
I, I believe it was Ken Rosenthal on foul territory, right? If it was on foul territory, that would be Ken Rosenthal, right? Yeah, I think they call it fair territory when he comes on, which is a nice little play on words. I like that. Well, he was talking about how to him, it's unanimous shouldn't hold nearly as much weight as first ballot because of just one. He didn't want to he didn't want to say it, but I I could see it. Like basically, I'll say it for him. It takes one idiot. And I think he said it takes one like angry or disgruntled writer. I'll say it takes one idiot to make it about them or their interaction or whatever. The guy who didn't vote for Jeter, you know, he wanted to be able to talk to us like friends and in, in private and probably be like, I was the one that didn't vote for Jeter, you know, because he's a, whoever did that. He or she is a weirdo, total weirdo. But the, the, the thing is, is I think, I think there's a chance, you know, someone doesn't vote for him. And, and Rosendahl said like people rest on like weird, you know, weird aspects of it. Oh, he, he had the, the alcohol issue. He had this or that. Oh, he fell off after age 33. Like, I don't know. I can guarantee he's 90 plus percent, 95 plus percent in his first ballot. And I think that's, I almost wish we had something else where it's like there's first ballot. And then there's like the 95, the, the A plus club. Basically, if you have an A plus or above you're in, cause that still gives you enough margin for error there. Where like if you're in the 97% or above, I don't remember because I didn't get a lot of A pluses. What was the required uh, percentage for an A plus? So I think A A minus was 90 to 92. I thought three. mm, I think A was 93 to 96. And then A plus was 97 to 100. Yeah, give, give me like the A plus club. I think he's an A plus club guy. How about just the A club? I don't know. Yeah, or the A club. I want more people in the club. Like, yeah. you don't need to make it that exclusive. Yeah. Um, what was it? I think Dan Shaughnessy voted for just Jeff Kent last year, which was pretty funny. Yeah, th- that one pissed me off because yeah, he's, by all accounts, the, right. the the least likable guy on the ballot. Right. In the words of Jim Beheim, not a journalist, an idiot. Um, <laughs> but yeah, man, I, I, I hope that there are not very many idiots that don't put Miggy um, on there and, and don't vote for Pujols too, because it's going to be back to back years, Pujols and Miguel Cabrera. And now Yachty, different story, but I think Pujols and Miggy are probably the two closest things we've got there. Um, Buck Showalter, Hall of Famer. Absolutely. Yep. Unceremonious end to his Mets tenure. Yeah. He announced it and he is the most media friendly manager that we've got in baseball. Um, I think the two most media friendly managers that we have in baseball are Showalter and Ross. And both those guys have had really rough goes of it. Um, But Buck Showalter announced that he will not be returning. He said that in his press conference pregame. And okay, let's read into that a little bit. Abby Mastracco, the New York Daily News, and your guy Tim Healy of Newsday had it and had follow-ups. And Tim pushed a statement from the Mets when they released it that had quotes from Steve Cohen, understandably so, and general manager Billy Epler. Now, Mm Epler is going to have a boss today at noon. David Stearns is going to become the president of baseball operations. They will have a press conference at noon. They will then announce the direction of where they are headed managerially. But Epler still has a say. And for this guy to fail as miserably as he has this year, for him to pretty much say, if you don't retire, you're fired to Buck Showalter, I find fascinating. I find backwards. And that's kind of what the New York Mets have been in 2023. Yeah. You know, it's it, that's that's the weird thing. I'm still trying to figure out where Billy Epler fits into this whole thing. Like, and, and part of me wants to separate the- it. Is he going to be the punching bag moving forward? What's his deal? I kind of think he's like the fall guy and also just the guy that, you know, he's almost the liaison where, you know, Epward was kind of a part of rebuilding this farm and it helps when you have money to acquire prospects. But, you know, I think Epward, we talked about it, could could maybe thrive a little bit more in that second fiddle role. And I just think he's been in over his head as a GM. So, you know, it's to me, it's the equivalent of like, okay, this coach didn't work out in, in the NFL rather than firing him, because this would never work in the NFL. It, it, most of the time when a, when a coach gets fired, they, they get a DC job elsewhere, whereas they started before in terms of like, oh, this guy's a great DC. Let's try him as a head coach. Doesn't work as a head coach, then goes back to DC. Yeah. Usually it doesn't happen with the same team. It seems like with the Mets, Epler is going to go from kind of coach back to DC. And you know what? Usually those guys, when they go back to DC, do pretty well. So it's it's outside the box. It's unique. But I, I think if there's things that they like that Epler's doing in there in terms of, of you know, 
farm development, whatever it may be, then that's an interesting aspect of it. But let's be real. Stearns is calling the shots here, and that's good because Epler is not a good shot caller. We talk about the Batman, the Robin. I think Stern, I think he can be, you know, Epler can be a fine Robin. Um, so it, that part's interesting. But to, to kind of answer and, and respond to your point, it does feel backwards that the Hall of Famer is being let go by the guy that's been pretty trash for like the last half decade plus yeah. and hasn't really earned the right to fire or let go a Hall of Famer. But that said, I think he's more of the the messenger in this. And I think that came from Steve Cohen, who ultimately said, you know, this isn't the right guy here. And it probably came from Stearns, too, if we're going to be honest, because yeah. Stearns knows, hey, there's a way I want to go about my business here. And there's a way I want this team run. And it's not with, with all due respect, a more archaic manager. And I think we saw the results of a more archaic manager over the last two years. And with things kind of going more forward thinking with Stearns, I think it would have only furthered the gap between front office and, and, and manager. Council is still in Milwaukee. Gabe Kapler was just fired by the San Francisco <clears throat> Giants. You're shaking your head. Do you think it's council? It sounds like, based on like everything that's been put out over the last week or so, that council may not be back in Milwaukee. Yeah. His contract's Ka- up. I'm not sure if they renew it. Which is so bizarre, by the way, because I think he's arguably the most underrated manager in the sport. Not great- it's not like Milwaukee is perpetually loaded, but they are perpetually solid yeah. in terms of being able to compete. To me, that's a sign of a good manager. I and mean, th- they've had players... Stearns. Yeah, they've had players traded away midseason. They've they are always in it. Or do they push it across the finish line? No, because they don't ever help them. <laughs> they don't ever really make major acquisitions. Stearns has done a good job of, of fielding a good team, and I think it's a big reason why they've been competitive. But you got to give Craig Council his credit, and I think he's one of the more respected guys in the game as well. Um, if the Brewers don't re up, it's a no brainer, right? You got Stearns in Milwaukee, or you got Stearns from Milwaukee in New York already, yeah. and I'm sure there's a good relationship there. And you know what? He's going to get more money. And you know the Brewers are cheap. That's probably part of the reason why they don't want to keep counsel. I don't know good. why. Yeah. To me, it's mind-blowing that they wouldn't you know, keep counsel. That's crazy. If they don't, the Mets, I think, will be all over that. And it it's almost makes too much sense. Let's open that can of worms real quick on the Kapler thing because you were like vehemently shaking yeah. your head no. Are you out on him getting a managerial job? I mean, I never doubt. The, the the nature of sports, which is let's just recycle the same failed managers what? or coaches or what it's amazing how every sport does that. It's, it's shot. Yeah. Probably. I I have maintained, I mean, they had the one magic season in, in San Francisco, but I've maintained I don't I don't think Gabe Kapler is a good manager. I just don't. In Philadelphia, people were clowning him to death about how, you know, questionable his his in-game decisions were and and how things were going and then we have the platoon master class of, of what was that season which is what capital loves to do yeah. things worked out perfectly that year where they had the perfect team for platooning and guys thrived in their roles and now you have a different team and he couldn't adjust and he tried to over platoon and just it was over managing and and obviously there was a huge disconnect between the the front office and capital the team and capital and there was a lot of throwing under the bus there I've just never been a big Gabe Kapler guy. And it's not only because he FaceTimes Farhan Zaidi, uh, you know, from from Starbucks on his laptop. Like, or, like it's not just that. Like, but I dude, just he's so chiseled. He takes such he's good handsome care of his as body. shit. He's handsome as hell. He's jacked and he doesn't eat cake. I agree. Yeah. But I, I'm just not if I'm a team that is trying to maintain, I just don't think Kapler's the guy. And, and I think this is just there's a balance to be had. Like I think Buck Showalter's way on the other end. I think Kapler's too far on the, on the other end. And I don't see Kapler as a guy that just is a, a player's manager. You'd think he would be, but it just strikes me as as the opposite. I, I don't I don't know if he rubs players the right way, even though he's a younger guy. I think there's a little bit of this uh, aura to him that it, it, in not a positive way. And I just look back at that Pre- Brebia situation. I mean, John Brebbia playing keep away with him with the ball when he's trying to come off the mound. Like that was one of the weirdest thing, weirdest things I've ever seen in my life. There just something rubs me the wrong way about Gabe Kapler, but I've also hated his in-game decisions dating back to Philadelphia. Yeah. Yes, they had that one magical season. And then recently, I just haven't liked the way he, he goes about his business there. Right. So it, it was almost like San Francisco was reluctant to gather star power oh, during like Gabe Kapler's managerial 
tenure in San Francisco because there's no such thing as a star in San Francisco. And the yeah, and that's not that, his fault. It's yeah. not his fault, but like they could get one as soon as he's gone. Like this free mm-hmm. agent period, Otani can absolutely be a giant. I think he is a San Francisco giant, but I don't know, man, like the one quote unquote star that they went to acquire during the Gabe Kapler era was Jock Peterson, who was wait for it, a platoon guy. And they tried to massage him into an everyday guy, but now he's just a platoon guy that plays half the time in lefty-lefty matchups, and he was an all-star for that reason. So, I Mm. mean, dude, like, he was was the master of getting too cute. And I'm with you. I guess I never really, like, took a firm stance on this guy's a bad manager because it's really hard to say that after an 107-win season. But I appreciate your you know like confidence in saying that you don't think well, he's a good one yeah well because I, I felt that way before you know I, yeah. and, and and i saw a lot when he was in philly obviously because i was following the marlins a little bit closer than too and i don't know i just i just didn't like the the in-game decisions and i thought it was a little bit of like paralyzing over managing the last thing i will say though is this is not all on gabe capware i do feel like he's the fall guy here to a degree they didn't put that good of a team out there i've said that since day one i thought the giants were, were not a good roster going into the year they started pretty well and then really fell off and we saw a lot of the issues exposed yeah they had some injuries and bad luck I really think that Farhan Zaidi is just as much of the issue too, if not more. I've maintained that point too. I know Giants fans either are going to love me or hate me for these two takes, but I've thought Farhan Zaidi is one of the more overrated execs in baseball as well. And we've talked about it on the call-up. I've broke it down in detail when it comes to player development and the things that they've done there. You look at some of the decisions they've made, whether it was you know bringing up Wade Meckler when they didn't need to just yet, throwing him into the fire, and now they furthered their 40-man crunch. They wouldn't have had to protect him from the Rule 5 for another year. Um, rushing Casey Schmidt up there. Uh, Marco Luciano's development has been totally, totally messed up in the way that they've handled it. I, I just think that there's a lot of different things that have been – mishandled and you look at all of their top prospects through the years they just have not developed the way that people thought except for patrick bailey so there's just i don't know there's a lot of moving parts here i thought that the kyle harrison situation has been handled pretty bizarrely um i I just i think farhan zaidi needs to wear a lot of this too damn man all right so ethan badowski just turned tuned out our social media guy so you just kind of crapped on his giants uh, we're about to get to his Cubs before we get to his Marlins, but we're going to get to your Marlins <laughs> as well. Yeah, um, fan of 20% of the National League. <laughs> real quick, um, tying a bow on the Mets thing, and this is totally unrelated to Buck Showalter and Billy Epler and you know the Gabe Kapler rabbit hole that we went down. Um, I, I saw something clipped from the director at SNY. John is his first name. I'm blanking on his last name. But I love the way SNY pushes – creative boundaries on local telecasts like they do a great job kind of visually moving the bar because frankly the bar isn't moved on many local broadcasts they look the exact same night in night out for a hundred cookie cut very cookie cut sny not cookie cut i really appreciate that um but there was one thing that just kind of highlighted this macro conversation in baseball that i saw and i was like (laughs) come on man it was a full it was a split screen and i love when they do it between batter looking at pitcher and pitcher looking at batter it's almost theatrical yeah but it was a close up of kyle schwarber and then on the other side it was zoomed in on the video board of his 197 batting average <laughs> and i can't do this anymore i yeah. <laughs> i i'm out of gas with the kyle schwarber thing and i of the three of us am certainly the batting average guy I know that. I'm aware of that. I do love a good batting average guy. I love a 300 hitter. But you cannot tell me that because Kyle Schwarber is hitting 197, he's not having a good year. Kyle Schwarber has 46 pumps, 101 driven in, and his win probability added is greater than Gunnar Henderson, Bo Bichette, Marcus Semien, Luis Arise, and Pete Alonso, to name a few. Yeah, This guy's had a great year. He just happens to have a batting mm. average that doesn't look good. But guess what? His OBP looks great. He's walked over 100 yeah. times. His slugging looks awesome. He's hit 46 jacks. I yep. can't do this anymore with him. Yeah, he also signed to be a DA. Like the plan was for him to mostly DH and not play the outfield as much as he had to this year. But, you know, you have Reese Hoskins go down and then you have, you know, the, the Harper situation as well and, and not being able to play in the field. And 
yeah, he sucked out there. Not supposed to be out there. He can't do it. He's 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 bad. And, and I know it's like, oh, will they get better at defense? Not in the cards for him. That's not what he was supposed to do. That's not the expectation. So yeah, I, I think the the conversation around Schwarber is interesting because it's like we're expecting him to do things that he wasn't expected to do because he has to step up and do it. Like what if like what if he just said no, I'm not playing the outfield. <laughs> he would be screwing his team. He's trying. He tried to go out there. He's not good at it. He's actually particularly terrible at it. Uh, but again, that was never the plan. Things have just kind of unfolded poorly, and that's why you have a low war, and that's why you have – I think part of the reason why you don't have as high of a batting average, I think he's like just literally more fatigued and less consistent. He's getting his swing off a couple times a game. He's connecting, but he's maybe not as consistent as he should be. Obviously, if you walk a bunch, I don't really care what your batting average is. If if he was hitting 220, people would shut the hell up. The problem yes, is it's below the Mendoza line, and if there's he was just hitting, something. If he was hitting 205, they would shut up. I'm telling there's you. There's something visual about. about the one, man. And, and look, I'm with you. He's good. Like, I, I have no issue. He's a big reason why they've been successful this year. But I do wonder, like, there's something about the one that just, it, it skeeves you out. You don't want to see a one. In a batting average, like that's that just it just doesn't look good. It, it it almost it looks terrible. So he's a good player, but you can't have a one in the batting average. You just can't sit at two hundred, sit at two hundred one, and it's fine. But you can't lead with the one. It just it it never goes well. If he hit two hundred six with these numbers, I I don't. We're not having this conversation. You're right. There's something about the one. If it was 199, we'd be, oh, he's oh so close to not sucking. Oh, guess yeah. what? He's got 100 ribbies this year. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. suck. Um, all right. Let's go rapid fire between the teams that were bounced on Saturday and the teams that solidified themselves as in on Saturday. Cubs, Reds, Mariners, all three bounced on Saturday. The Reds, great story at the beginning of the year. Luke Weaver had like a 7 ERA and an 8-start span, and the Reds won every single game. Cool, not sustainable. I think we knew that. They're fun. They look really exciting for next year and moving forward. This year was not their year. The Chicago Cubs and Seattle Mariners both full-blown collapsed, and the Cubs was way worse. Since the Cubs started their skid in Colorado on September 12th, they ranked fourth in all of baseball in team OPS. They did not stop hitting. They had an 800 team OPS since September 12th, but they had a 484 staff ERA during that stretch. And their bullpen was bad. Their bullpen was battered. And the managerial decisions, which we highlighted at the end of last week, man, they came back to bite them game after game after game. The Cubs, I think more so than the Mariners, really did feel like a choke job, which sucks to say. Yeah, the, the, we talked about the Cubs one time. So I don't, I don't want to I don't want to make Cubs fans want to like yeah. tune us out. You know, it's funny. You my my friends. Are, <laughs> yeah, my friends that are Dolphins fans like, you know, they just got they got worked a, against the Bills and they're like, well, I guess no, no media sports media this week, you know, and, and I don't <laughs> want it to be that way for Cubs fans. Like, I, you know, we'll, we'll talk about a lot of good. And, and I still think the future is bright, extremely bright in Chicago. Maybe it's with a different guy at the helm. Uh, maybe it's with some some different things shaken up. I think they should absolutely pay Cody Bellinger. Um, they need a superstar. And, you know, th- there was I think it was Bleacher Nation or or, or Michael who who runs the account there, but yeah. he's like he mentioned he made a comment on the top jersey sales, and there was not a Cub within. I think it's Michael Sarami, right? Michael that's, Sarami. That's the name. Yep. Yeah, there wasn't a, a Cub in the top twenty, and and that just shouldn't be the case. It's the freaking Chicago Cubs, and I think if you extend Cody Bellinger, he's a guy in the top twenty. And has, as he said in the tweet, that's not a barometer for for success, but you know I think the Cubs have seen enough this year to say hey. We need that. We need to retain a superstar here and maybe go get somebody else and keep keep trying to push the, the chips forward here. Terrible collapse, really frustrating, really disappointing. But this is also a team that's showed me enough. I think it showed the front office enough, showed everybody enough that they are ready to compete next year and ready to to be a legitimate National League contender, like you know, for, for the pennant. So that's the positive side. The negative side is. I mean, they had a 90% and I don't buy into the probability, but, you know, I think the probability was pretty accurate there. If, if I was going to give some, you know, number in my head, they had a 90% chance to make the playoffs, it, whether you ask fan graphs, baseball reference, whatever it was. And that's where I would have put it myself too. Obviously you can't really just put a number on it, but it seemed pretty accurate to me. Um, it, it was theirs to lose. We were talking about them potentially leading, you know, taking the first spot in the wild card and then look at where they're at now. Um, it, it, it just seemed like, 
with the Reds, as you mentioned, it was a team coming back to earth. You look at the roster, it's like, okay, that's what they're supposed to do. But when you look at the Cubs and the Mariners, it's kind of like, what happened? How did they get there? And that's that's usually where you you, you, can, you can't say anything other than collapse. Yeah, well, and the Mariners, we had sky-high expectations, and they were so slow out of the gates, and then they turned it on, and then they sputtered at the tail end. With the Cubs, it was... This year isn't the year like they're a 500 team. And then at the beginning of the year, it was okay. They're a 500 team. And then by the break, it was okay. They're a little bit better than a 500 team. And then right after the break, it was they're a wild card team. And then they sputter late. So team sputtered late. But I think we had different preseason expectations for these two. And I think the roller coaster kind of turned in different ways pre all-star break for those two. Um, Real quick, tinfoil hat. And I... I don't know. I guess I'm going to be the sensationalist. It's you're going to say Otani to the Cubs. No, it's 10:15 in Europe. I'm going to say a different angel. Um, priority one is Bellinger because you don't have to give up assets, just money. But if you can't get Bellinger, Mike Trout to the Cubs is an option, <laughs> man. I mean, dude, they have the they have the spending, they have the budget to do it, and they also have one of the better farms in baseball. Yeah. It like that works, and I don't know what Trout's going to cost prospect wise, but man, like, not a ton, I, it, not as much as you think because of the money. Um, you could offset some money with the like Tyone contract, send it the other way, like sure. try to send some stuff the other way. Um, I mean, dude, it's not crazy. I just I think the Cubs are going to try to stay so true to what they're building for sustainable success. Yeah. Um, but I think they should vet out and see see what's out there. Um, I would love to see them go after like Yamamoto. And, um, you know, I think the big reason why they fell apart is, you know, Stroman going down. I think that that really, For really sure. hurt. Yeah, Justin Steele hit, you know, this this innings marker that, you know, he just never sniffed before and he saw him slow down, you know, over the last month, month and change. And then the rest of the rotation, that was our big concern anyway. So it's just not a great rotation. Uh, then on the Mariners side, you know, Robbie Ray goes down. That's I know he's not Cy Young Robbie Ray, but that's depth that that hurts because then you got to lean on rookies who or or young arms who, you know, just again, ran out of gas. I mean, Wu was great for most of the year, but Brian Wu far exceeded any innings, you know, marker. George Kirby literally complained about being fatigued. I, they just ran out of gas. So, you know, I, I do kind of hear what Cal Rowley was saying in terms of like, hey, you know, we need to go get bigger names. And that was part of the frustration with with the Mariners is like you'd expect them to, you know, after what they did last year to kind of push the chips forward a little bit more. I think we talked ourselves into it because it's like, oh, now they have Teoscar, you know, now they have a couple guys that can, you know, maybe they'll make a leap. But I thought too much was put on Julio. And that's why the first half of the season was so bad for them is you know, Julio struggled. And then the second half was so good because Julio performed. I I know there's more moving parts to that, but I think Julio was too important to like no team that is supposed to compete for a pennant should be, I think, impacted by one player that much. And I mean, you look at the Mariners, you take Julio out of the lineup versus when you have him in or have Julio performing well versus when he's not performing. I don't know if there's a team in baseball that's as impacted by one player's performance as the Mariners are with Julio, a a competing team that is. I just don't think they were planning for that, though. Like, that that's my thing. So, yes, I agree with you. We look back at the 2023 season and we say, okay, they were so ridiculously dependent on Julio Rodriguez. I can counter and say that's because a lot of guys were underwhelming. Cal Raleigh had a really slow start to the year. Teoscar yeah. Hernandez was not the Teoscar they traded Big for. Big disappointment. Fucking Colton Wong took a 180 in his career. I thought Wong was a great get for them. In spring I thought he'd be fine. Yeah. And here we go. And he signed a minor league deal with the Dodgers in August. Suarez, Suarez regressed. Gino regressed. And Ty France regressed. Like there were so many guys that took a step back yeah, in that Seattle fair. offense. So I, I can't I can't say honestly, like I, I can't say that I agree with Cal Raleigh, to be totally honest. I'm like, Yeah, I, okay, I think that's fair. Names. I'm like, dude. <laughs> When you got Teoscar, he was a big name. When you got Colton Wong, that created a ripple in Major League Baseball. We said, oh, wow, the Mariners are cooking. Yeah, it's like, oh, that's the one thing they needed. I mean, and I know people aren't getting pumped about Colton Wong, but it was it was kind of what made sense. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then you, you also saw them, you know, just kind of trending in the direction where you're like, all right, they're just going to keep getting better from within as well. So I, I am with you on that. And then J.P. Crawford played like an all-star this year overall. You know, like – Especially at the end, he really turned it on. And, and 
So it is interesting to hear him say that. Um, and I, I'm kind of thinking about it. Like who did Cal Rowley want them to go get, you know, who was who out there that would have been better. I mean, Tay Oscar was kind of exactly what they needed. He just didn't hold up his end of, of, of the bargain. I think the one thing I wanted to mention really quickly, I know we got some other teams to talk about was, yeah, I, I don't I don't agree with what George Kirby said, you know, a month ago, and I don't agree with what Cal Rowley said totally. I mean, I understand that the, the desire for, you know, pushing the chips forward and, and being competitive. Yeah, I find it interesting that two of the young core players for the Mariners, who frankly could be franchise pieces, who frankly are both pre-arb, you know, candidates for this team and guys that you want to lock up for the foreseeable future. We talk about Rowley is one of the best catchers in the game. And George Kirby is a guy that I think is one of the best young arms in the game. Speaking out of turn, kind of, and, and I wouldn't say out of turn, they have the right to say whatever they want, yeah. but speaking out in what I guess Scott Service and the front office would say is out of turn, you don't see that a lot, especially from young guys. And it's not like George Kirby and Cal Rowley are these like loose cannon, um, you know, jazz chisholm type figures that just kind of say whatever they want and whatever comes to their mind. So I wonder what's going on within there. I wonder what the clubhouse dynamic is like there. I wonder I wonder what the connection or or divide is between manager, front office, and team. Because I just find it interesting that on multiple occasions, you have young players speaking out about decision-making yeah. and, and two different types of decision-making, how one pitcher is being handled himself and how the team is being built. Those are two things that you generally – it's it's taboo to speak on as a player, whether you're a veteran or a youngster, and both of these guys are, are youngsters. Yeah, and the thing about Seattle is, yes, I've heard the cries that have been anti-Depoto when they moved Kendall Graveman at the 21 deadline. Like, you heard the Depoto thing, and you know that Depoto is just kind of a wild card at points. I've really never heard any anti-Scott Service rhetoric. I think this might just be two young guys like saying things they shouldn't be saying. I agree. I agree. Jeff Conine, you know, when we were doing outside the box, he had nothing but great things to say about Scott's service and the way like he, he, you know, it was a teammate and interacted with people in the way everything he understands and people we've talked to the way he interacts and manages a team. Like I know Niner was a big Scott service guy yeah. uh, and loves the way he goes about his business. I know there are a lot of announcers that are big Scott service people. I was listening to a podcast with Boog Shambi, who I know was on outside the box, and he's a huge Scott service guy. Like, here's the thing, man. Like, if that guy is that well respected and you've got two guys that are pre-arb and not vets by any means, you may think that Raleigh's a vet. You may think that Kirby is entering vet status. They're not. They're very far from that. You got to get to free agency to be considered a vet, I think. And for these two pre-arb guys to speak their mind like that to the media, it it's very weird. And I know that we've got kind of a, a firecracker in Kelnick too. Seattle has some characters in the clubhouse, yeah. to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Kelnick one is is interesting. Who would have thought like we'd be talk we wouldn't be talking about Kelnick as much as as these guys in terms of like Kelnick's a guy that I would expect to say something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but he can't because he hasn't performed that well and then he kicked the cooler. So he's just gotta kinda be quiet and 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 mind his own business over there. But um yeah, I mean, he disappointed when he came back too. He, he did the whole Kalnick roller coaster is a whole nother story too. Mariners could be a whole podcast. A whole podcast. Five teams that are in right now. Two on the National League side, three on the American League side. They locked up their spots on Saturday. Longest one first, then we go rapid fire through the final four. But I think it's worth it to spend time on the Miami Marlins, who got in in a full season. Yep. We're not counting 2020. Got Don't in in a full season for the first time since Miguel Cabrera was 20 years old in 2003. <laughs> By year, I love this. Our friend Chris, who is at Baseball Pods, loves tweeting out the uh, the call-up and the Just yeah. Baseball show. Amazing guy. I, I saw him put out something, and I guess he's a Yankee fan. He said Kim Ang would be perfect for the Yankees. I say no. She stays <laughs> put in Miami yes. because she's building a wagon. But he put out this number that I thought was fascinating. The Marlins in three years under Kim Ang, 29th in Team OPS, 27th in Team OPS. This year they jumped to 18th in Team OPS. Second worst team in baseball, fourth worst team in baseball, and now they're knocking on the door of league average. Yeah. And in that ballpark, with that payroll, that's so hard to do to make that jump in three seasons. But she mm -hmm. aced the burger trade, it seems. We'll see what Eater becomes. 
She aced getting Josh Bell at the deadline. She has found some guys, either in yep. free agency or via trade. Brian De La Cruz for Jimmy Garcia. Come on now. Yeah, well, that was my trade. Yeah, that was your trade. Sorry. So Kim <laughs> Angle, still in that. I will listen to Aram. <laughs> that was that will forever be the most impressive thing I'll ever do. And for those who don't know, know it might be newer to the show. When I was hosting Locked On Marlins, I did mock trades before the deadline, and I literally did Jimmy Garcia to the Astros for Brian De La Cruz. And then three days later, that exact trade went down, and people thought like, "Whoa, like you got sources?" I was like, "No," because <laughs> yeah. Je- Jeff wasn't with the team at that point. I could like there was nothing you could possibly tie. It was just the craziest pull in my life. But yeah, that was a nice that was a nice move. That was a great move. So, yeah, I mean, I just want to open the floor to you, too, because I know you've got like a rant type thing ready. But Kim might be the savior of the Miami Marlins. Yes, because there's a lot of things. And I'm going to be all over the place here because, I mean, it's 2020 was cool and all whatever. I that that is 2020 wasn't a measure of a good team because 31 and 29 doesn't tell me shit. And yeah, they, they, you know, won that one series against the Cubs. That Cubs team wasn't good either. And, and they won that series with nobody in attendance and Sixto Sanchez pitch doesn't matter. That that makes it as fake as humanly possible if Sixto Sanchez pitched. but where Derek Jeter left this team. And I know, I think people kind of blur the lines is like, yes, Kim was brought in as the GM, but at that time, Cheater was still the shot caller. And that's something I know for a fact. And, and Gary Dembo was still a shot. She was probably third in the pecking order, being able to do what she wanted to do. I really look at the Kim Ang era from when Derek Jeter, you know, kind of steps away onward. And that's really just the last year and change. And, 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 and I think what she's been able to do, uh, especially this year and going into this year is where you can really focus on, you know, a, a comfortable and free Kim Ang being able to actually call the shots. And, I said that before this year. So this isn't me just saying it because, hey, they, they're successful now. This is Kim. Any failure that's that's attached to Derek Cheater. She's made some mistakes, as any new GM has. But what's amazing to me is the way that she's been able to kind of maneuver around that and, and maybe try to uh, adjust and, and capitalize. And I look at the Luis Arias trade. That That's the first domino here of, of, I think, what was a really impressive turnaround of a team. They were striking out too much last year. And they weren't hitting for much power. What do they do? Okay, first, you go get the best contact hitter in the game. People were were up in arms. Oh, my God, the Marlins got fleeced because they attached Jose Salas. She knew. She knew that there was going to be a negative reaction by attaching some prospects there. And they attached another guy with the last name Chorio. He must be good. Who knows? No one cares about Jose Salas and Brian Chorio. I can tell you a lot of people care about Luis Arias right now. The team would be nowhere near where they're at without him. Then, yeah, Pablo Lopez has been great for them. Sure. But the Marlins have been fine pitching-wise. Of course, you can always use an arm like him, but I wouldn't undo the trade right now. That was the first move. You have the out-of-their-minds season in the first half or first half of the season. And then they hit a freaking wall. And I think at that point, we were saying, should the Marlins even be buyers? And I was like, I don't know. Not only was Kim left with a a bad Major League Baseball team, she was left with one of the worst farm systems in Major League Baseball and also a limited budget because they're a small market team that can't really spend much. Yes, it was a mistake to go sign Cueto. Yes, it was a mistake to to throw some money at Gene Segura, but that's when you're just trying to sign whatever you can within your your confines. It's not her fault that nobody wanted to come there. Justin Turner took less money elsewhere. Brennan Drury took less money elsewhere because nobody was winning there before, and you have to have a little bit of proof of concept. But they end up going into to kind of the all-star break and then going closer to the deadline. We're saying, okay, now they're falling apart after that break. And they could have just said, eh, you know, we don't have much of a farm system as is. Let's not make any moves. Instead, she gets creative and figures out a way to upgrade the team with almost no prospect capital, cashing in Jake Eater for Jake Berger, finding somebody that I didn't think was going to get better and kind of buying low and getting him, you know, in the right situation. I I think there had to be some communication with Brant Brown, you know, the Marlins hitting coach of, hey, can you, you see something with these guys? You think you can unlock a little bit more? And Brant Brown unlocked a little bit more with both Josh Bell and uh, Jake Berger. And they've both talked about that. It was a little tweak and things have really gotten rolling. But the Marlins in the first half of the season, up until the trade deadline, the Marlins were 28th in home runs. Then you go up from the trade deadline onwards. They're tied for 12th in homers. And I know there's more to the game than just hitting home runs, but the Marlins were so deprived of being able to, to just 
drive-in runs in general, and being able to, to change the score with one swing of the bat. Solaire was the only guy that was really doing that. Jazz, when he was healthy, and that was we're seeing the power fluctuate so much when Jazz was healthy and when he wasn't because he was such a key part of that. You go get somebody like Josh Bell, who at that point, I don't think anybody wanted him. He was an expensive first baseman who was a negative war guy, sub 100 WRC+. plus. She said, no, I still believe in this guy. I think we can unlock more. Trades for him, 11 home runs in 53 games, a 120 WRC+. plus. Jake Berger was performing, but people said, ah, oh, no, no, this is a bubble. It's not going to stay. Instead, it's the opposite. Since he's been traded to the Marlins, he's slashing 303, 355, 505, and has been a huge reason why this Marlins team has been successful. So not only does Kim get arguably their two best power bats, she gets them with control because I don't think Bell's opting out and Berger's under control for years. And all she traded was Khalil Watson, a failed first round pick that I'm attaching to the previous regime. And Jake Eater, who, yeah, he's he's a solid pitching prospect. He's 25 years old and doesn't really fit in for them right now with, with all of the arms that they have. And she's able to dump Gene Segura's salary with that. I mean, you got to tip your cap to Kim Ang. And there were so many people doubting her, not respecting her. And at this point, you have to respect what Kim Ang has done with this team and being able to upgrade it with limited financial means and one of the worst farm systems in Major League Baseball. And she got two guys at the deadline that really wanted to be there. And I'm hung up mm-hmm. on Berger and Bell because they really elevated the offense, like you're saying, from a power standpoint. But Bell, seeing the postgame conversations he'll do with Steven Strom, who does a great job on pre and post with, with the Marlins. Um, but like seeing the conversations there and seeing how active, and it might just be because Berger's a social media guy and his family's social media people, but like, it seems like Jake Berger fucking loves being a Miami Marlin, which is really cool. And I've heard it, like so many people say that Jake Berger is one of the good guys in Major League Baseball. And I'm making him like priority 1A to get on the show this offseason oh, yeah. because I want to talk to Berger so bad about this year. Um, this cat, man, like I'm so happy for him being a guy that went through the shit after being a first round pick of the White Sox. And I, I mean, like, you know, kind of being on the most demoralizing team that I've ever seen in sports this year and yeah. somehow making it out the other side and being so happy to be there. So I I tip my cap to the Marlins. I think Kim Ang should be a general manager until the day she retires. She has proved so much in the last 365 days. I cannot tell you how impressed I am by Kim Ang. Last thing, she also hired Skip Schumacher. Yes. Wow. Skip Schumacher has been he's easily. I mean, you can go snit any year because of how good the Braves are, but But he works on vibes. Skip works on like other shit. (laughs) I mean, it's incredible. And the bullpen and and, and, you know, some of the pieces that they've been able to add there. And and but hiring Skip Schumacher just seems like the perfect fit for this team. And that's a huge part of it as well. That the managerial process was an interesting one. And we didn't know quite, you know, who they were going to go with, what direction they were going to go. And they picked the right guy. And it's been awesome to see that. So when you trade for two players, when your team is literally drowning and they end up accounting for 30% of your home runs since the break and, and a majority of your production. And then you also, before the season, hired the right manager to help you weather that storm. I mean, Kim Ang, one, needs to be extended, and I know she will. I'd be shocked if she didn't. And two, needs to be respected more by the baseball community. And I think people are starting to realize that this woman's for real. It's a respect on Kim Ang's name. Um, All right, final four teams. We're going to go rapid fire through. Arizona is in on the National League side per the GOAT, Sarah Langs, the Diamondbacks, the third team in Major League history to go from an 110 plus loss season to a playoff berth within three seasons. The other two teams to do that are this year's Baltimore Orioles and the 2015 Houston Astros, who lost 111 games in 2013. By the way, do you know who the scouting director was for the Houston Astros? From 2013 to 2018. The scouting director for the Houston Astros. Turned them from an 111 loss team to the dynasty that we see now. Wasn't Anthopolis. Hint involved with one of the other two teams that I just mentioned. Oh. Oh, so it's it's the uh 
All right, just, just tell me. I'm, I'm blanking it's on Mike names. Elias. Mike Elias oh, was the scouting yep. director yeah, 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 yeah. for Houston. Dude, that guy drafts like a menace. A menace. Like a menace. Bro. Insane. Yeah. By the way, quick shout out Colton Kowser, Grand Slam in the AAA championship game. Norfolk. The least surpri- the least surprising uh champion of all time in, in, in for for the minor leagues, the Norfolk Tides. <laughs> like, of course. Of course that, they that won. Starting lineup. I, I gotta find that starting lineup, but off the dome, I think it was um Holiday, Norby, Kowser, Stowers, Joey Ortiz, um Lewin Diaz. Lewin Diaz. Anthony Bamboom. Yeah, that that's like seven hitters right there. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're they were a freak show. You said Jackson Holiday, of course, I said right? Holiday. Yeah, Holiday yeah. let off. I mean, played short. I think there was uh, five top 100 guys, uh, like just baseball top 100 guys in that lineup. Just and then you got Kyle insane. Stowers too, just hanging out. Yeah, who's just a really good baseball player who's just you know was banged up all year. I mean, just just insanity. Uh, they had Ryan McKenna in that lineup too. Yeah, there you go. Um, so no, man, Arizona has that massive turnaround. Ketel Marte getting great again this Love year it. is huge. But like, dude, this year was all about Carroll and Gallen and Merrill Kelly. And I'm so excited to talk about these guys. But I, I mean, credit to Arizona, man. They got hot at the right time at the tail end of the year. Can I make a weird prediction? Sure. I kind of I see them throwing money at Aaron Noah. I don't I know that. why. I, I don't know why. I don't know why. And that's just a fit I love because they don't need Aaron Nola to be an ace. Aaron Nola could be a three, you know, and, and they're all right. You probably want him to be a two. You're going to pay him to be a two. But I think that's a perfect fit. They've been wanting to spend money, and you got to feel like you're in a great position to spend money. This is a, a house money year for me if I'm thinking about the D-backs. Of course, no fans want to hear that. Of course, the D-backs aren't going to say that. But they are – you know, making the strides that we were hoping to see them make. No one's expecting them to win the World Series. Maybe they make it out of the wild card. Maybe they put up a fight in the first round. Maybe they can sneak out of the first round. But what I love is that this team just took another step closer. And I do think they're going to spend this offseason. So I'm just really excited about the future of Arizona and, and, and where they're headed. And they've got some good prospects still continuing to, to make their way through the pipeline, too. 100%. You mean Lynn's Cy Young campaign in 2026. I'm already going to go crazy. I already put money on it. Like 2026 Cy Young. You mean Lynn? I don't think it's on BetMGM. I went offshore. Not yet. Not yeah. yet. Um, all right. Texas, Houston, and Toronto are in on the American League side. Uh, I want to shout out Houston because Houston took care of fucking business when they needed to take care of business. And it was a workmanlike celebration when they did get in. Houston won four of five. They're leading in Arizona 8-1 through eight. They're going to win five of six to end the season. They could very well win the American League West. I think if they win and Texas loses and Texas and Seattle are going on right now. They are inevitable. And this year, among all the others, proved that they are inevitable. I tried to be edgy and say, hey, you know, I, I love the the Astros experience. Of course, I just feel like this is light work for them. But I like the matchups. You know, maybe the Mariners sneak their way in, you know. And, of course, there's more to the game than, than you know, just what kind of matches up, you know, when you see the, the schedule there. But um, I just I had to die on the Mariners hill, I guess. But you just it's just too easy for the Astros in regards to not saying baseball is easy. This has been an up and down season for them, and you know a lot of the guys that they had rolling. Yeah, I, I was really concerned about Hunter Brown. I you know I haven't loved what I mean. Everybody we went through it like everybody in the second half basically in the rotation, other than Justin Verlander, has had like a four plus ERA uh, as a starter. So it, it is surprising. But again, as you kind of mentioned. These guys have been there, done that. They're the most experienced team in Major League Baseball when it comes to just playoff games. And and I think for them, it was like low heart rate. This is nothing. You know, this is still just another game for them. For the Mariners, I think it was a little bit more pressing. Uh, and I think it was a little bit more tension there. And you could just see it by the celebration, like you said, with the Astros. It was like handshakes and we got a lot more work to do. This is This doesn't mean shit to them. Yeah, it was kind of a limp to the finish line for Texas, but they did secure a spot with Seattle losing. Texas built capital with a six-game win streak from the 19th to the 25th. And for me, I was very vocal about it on this show. I was like, I don't think Texas is, you know, I I think they might slip out of this thing. I think they might slip out of this thing. And as soon as they got to the end of that six-game win streak, I just had to admit defeat. And they won enough games to solidify themselves. But man, like... I don't know. I still have a ton of concerns when they get into the wild card format. I don't know how that pitching is going to hold up. 
I am nervous about the pitching. Uh, no, no doubt about that. And I'm happy they got in because you know what? They've played so well for so much of the season and you know, the injuries and some of the you know, unfortunate things that they, they should have had a full year of Corey Seager. And and that would have helped a lot. He probably would have been an eight win guy. Uh, you know, we wanted to see even a healthy Scherzer, even if it's diminished, Nate Eovaldi was tracking like a Cy Young guy and then, you know, gets hurt. I'm glad he's back, but you know, he's just not the same guy before and as he was before. So, you know, and then of course, DeGrom going down after six, starts like there's just been a lot of unfortunate aspects to the, the season for the Rangers so I'm glad they got in but yeah I'm with you I got a lot of concerns it helps that Jaymont looks like you know one of the more trustworthy starters right now and he's been awesome all year long um but yeah man it's it's interesting I, I'm I'm happy that they said they're not ruling out a Scherzer return but I'm not going to trust him very much that said I'd love to see Scherzer throw at some point in the postseason uh, but yeah, it's 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 a interesting situation for this Rangers team. But I'm not counting out that offense. I'm not counting out the the ability to kind of piece it together here, and and we'll see. But I mean, even through this finish, you, you had a Chapman blown save. You still have some questions with the bullpen. I mean, um, I'm worried about them. But again, they can they can slug, and and they're going to need to slug. Real quick on Jaymont, did you see what he said about his wife? No, his wife is a doctor. He said, quote, she loves how dumb I am, and that's what makes it work. <laughs> I love that. that. Huge on I that. love that. That's why my girlfriend's in med school, which is just awesome. Um, she likes the idiocy that comes from me. I don't <laughs> think you like it, but we can get it deeper into that a little bit later. If we yeah, did like a South time. Beach Sessions type thing. Yeah. <laughs> South um, Beach Sessions. <laughs> last one is Toronto. Toronto won the games they needed to win in spite of Laddie not getting to his hit total for Peter, which is a Poor damn Pete. shame. Um, Toronto, I actually look at in the opposite light to Texas, and this may be the death sentence for Toronto, me saying this. You put them in a postseason series, and I think fucking anything can happen with the Toronto Blue Jays. They can pitch their way to a World Series. I do firmly believe that. And if Vladdy turns it on, and if Bichette is Bichette, and if the complementary pieces can do anything, I think that Toronto can be dangerous for any team they run into in the American League or the National League. I'm I, I think they're dangerous, no doubt about it. They're extremely talented. I, I'm just so and again, this doesn't matter because baseball is not played this way. But in the playoffs, I do think it does matter a little bit more. I don't have that much faith in whoever gets the ball game too. And well, who is it going to be? It's going to be Barrios. Barrios. I, I, He's just there's, just there's just so many four or five earned run starts. Maybe you short leash him and, and hope the bullpen goes. But I also who who locks it down? Jordan Romano to me is is a setup guy masked as a closer. And so those two things are concerning. But to your point, they rake. Uh the lineup's long. Uh, I, I I think they have the ability if you know if they're hot, if you get a hot Barrios and a hot Chris Bassett, they can pitch. And 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 Kikuchi sweeps 15 hours, you know, they're in good shape. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely a team that you know I don't want to run into, but I could also see them just falling flat. So there's no in between with them. And um, I hope they play David Schneider, though. That's all I'll say. And stop MLB, stop fucking him with with the you know calls outside the zone. How nobody has had more called strikes outside the zone than David Schneider. Why? Like why? I, 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 it just—it's crazy to me. Do that to to somebody else, please. You know they hate. They hate the stash thing he's got going. It on. must be the stash. Do you remember early Julio in 2022? J. Rod like was getting hosed left. Hosed, right. absolutely demolished. I was like, okay, you know, he's the young kid, top prospect. You want to like, hey, this is this is the show. Welcome to the show, bub. Like, David Schneider, come on, like throw him a bone, man. Give him a smaller zone, Give like smaller if anything. Zone. Competitive advantage, man. Like he's not a scratch golfer. Um, but no, I he does. I think like he is actually. Months. I'm is pretty sure he golfer? is literally a scratch golfer. Damn it. Okay. <laughs> like that, of all here. the things you could have said, I'm pretty sure. If not, he's like very close. I know he's nasty at golf. He's not, like he said in the offseason, all he does is golf to hang with his dog and chill. <laughs> Dude, the number of players that just like all they do is golf in the offseason is absolutely insane. I I kind of get it. I get it. I get it, but also like nobody's into like tennis or going on walks. Eh, I don't know. Like going on walks are boring. Troy Johnson said Mar Marlon's minor league player of the year. Troy Johnson swears that golf actually helped him with his swing for this year. Okay, yeah, I, I think that's say, so interesting. I know one walk guy in uh, 
professional baseball that I've talked to, and that's Justin Henry Malloy, which conversation's <laughs> over on the call up. And he said, I love my morning walks. And I was like, okay. Which is funny because he also walks in in the baseball version of walks as much as anybody in professional baseball. Yes. So there we go, man. That guy's all about walking. Um, all right. Foolish baseball makes his return to the Just Baseball show tomorrow. Going to be you two with Foolish walking through your playoff predictions. We have a very fun week planned. We've got, obviously, the wild card stuff. We're going to do a DS preview on Saturday. That'll be a Saturday morning live stream. We'll put some of that stuff out uh, on our social medias. And um, it'll be YouTube live. It'll be Twitch. It'll be uh, live streamed on Twitter as well. And we're going to kind of walk through the DS. Hopefully, we have a couple of special guests pop in and kind of offer their thoughts on the NLDS and the ALDS as well. So that'll be Saturday morning, no episode Friday, but tomorrow it's going to be Aram, Peter, and Foolish Baseball giving their postseason uh, predictions and maybe filling out uh, a bracket or something now that we have seating. So uh, are you ready for postseason ball? No. I, dude, I like I, again. I don't count twenty twenty. So was that, a, just, was that a stupid question? Are you ready for postseason ball? It's rhetorical, kind of, but like, I'm, I don't know what a Marlins playoff game looks like with fans in attendance. Like I, I very, very vaguely remember two thousand three. So yeah, the little kid in me is happy in that regard. I mean, my I used to always talk about it with my dad. Of like, oh, if the Marlins make the playoffs, can I get out of school? Can we go? And he was like, yeah, sure, of course, knowing that they're not going to make it. Um, but if they made it, he would have had to take me. They never did. Um, and, you know, here we are. Or, you know, I'm definitely going to try to go if they make it, which is which is pretty awesome. Um, also, real quick, just wanted to thank everybody. I mean, the amount of, of messages, you know, I thought YouTube comments, DMs, re- replies, everybody just sending their, their kind thoughts, you know, after my my grandfather passed away, I, I can't thank everybody enough. It was some of the most heartwarming messages I got. Um, so, to all those who reached out, thank thank you so so much. I can't I can't tell you how much that meant uh, to me and, and my family. I shared a lot of those with my mom and uh, and my sister, and and they were were very moved by a lot of the messages that you all sent. So so thank you so much for that. We do love you guys. We we yes. really do. Like we make fun of each other all the time. Do we make fun of I guess just baseball fans in general, but we fucking love you guys and Aram. Love you, bro. Love you guys. Love you as well, Jack. Oh, all right. <sighs> we will talk to you tomorrow. 